Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Scott Sperling, co-CEO of TH Lee. He's uh, on the firm's uh, management and investment committees. Uh, TH Lee is one of the top private equity firms. Uh, they've been around since the 1970s. They've done countless, countless deals, uh, hundreds and hundreds of deals. Um, you might be familiar with some of their bigger deals. They did the Warner Music deal. That was a multi-billion dollar deal uh, about 20 years ago. Dunkin' is a, a group of franchisees from Dunkin' Donuts. Perhaps the biggest deal they did, or, or the most mindshare, was the Snapple deal. They bought Snapple. They took them public. They facilitated the sale to Quaker Oats. Uh, that was really the first time I had private equity on my radar. It's like, really? Someone just came along and said, here's hundreds of millions of dollars for Snapple, and let's sell them for a billion dollars, take them public? It Really fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, Sperling is as knowledgeable about private equity and valuation and how that sector and, and entire industry really is changing. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention he ran alternative investments for uh, the Harvard Endowment for about a decade. Really super unique perspective and just uh, uh, fascinating insights into the sector. If, if you are at all interested in in private equity, in the nature of these transactions and how alternatives are changing, then you're going to find this to be really a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my discussion with co-CEO of TH Lee, Scott Sperling. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Scott Sperling. He is the co-chief executive officer at Thomas H. Lee, a famed private equity firm. Uh, he's also a member of the firm's management and investing committees. From 1974 to 2006, THL raised over $22 billion in six institutional funds and completed more than 100 investments. Currently, their flagship fund has about $5 billion and the automation fund about $900 million in LP assets. Scott Sperling, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's start a little bit with your background. You were at the Boston Consulting Group long before uh, you were in asset management. Tell us about your years as a consultant and how did that lead into private equity? Well, I joined BCG out of business school uh, and there was no great intent on my part. I was 23 years old and had lots of loans, and consulting was one of the higher-paying jobs you can get in those days. But it was a great experience because it really put somebody who was young and reasonably inexperienced in a place where you could apply the kind of analytics that you get used to in business school to the real world 
working with C-suite executives at very large companies around the world. So the uh, experience there was, you know, really quite intensive. And for me, it was about three and a half years of, of just being fed with fire hose of exposure to senior managers who were running some of the most interesting companies uh, globally. And you eventually end up running alternative investments for the Harvard Endowment Fund. You were there for more than a decade. How did you find your way to the Harvard Investment Company? So it was one of those moments in life where you get a a call out of the blue and you're asked to consider something that you've never considered before or even truly understood. And Walter Cabot, who had started the Harvard Management Company, is one of the first third-party managers of uh, a major endowment. It was wholly owned by Harvard but run completely separately under Walter's leadership, had decided that rather than sticking with a typical 65-35 split of U.S. domestic equities and and bonds, he wanted to expand into some new areas. And he made the decision that rather than bringing somebody in with a typical investment management background, they want somebody with more of a business analytics background. And I went in, was incredibly impressed with Walter and his vision for where he wanted to take the management company and how he was looking for ways to really give the endowment an ability to participate in areas that he felt had higher risk-adjusted returns, go-forward basis. And he convinced me that this would be a great thing for, for me to do. And I started there, and we opened up activities in what, in those days, uh, we thought of private equity mostly as venture capital, but then moved into the buyout space, investing largely in funds, and then doing some co-investing. There was some real estate holdings that Harvard already had, but that was an area that I was given. And then what we ended up calling commodities, which was largely oil and gas and timber in those days. And so it started with almost nothing and grew to a little over 20% of the endowment by the time I left 11 years later. So that was more than a decade. When did you end up starting there? What was the date? So I started in um, 84 and left in late 94. We're recording this not long after the David Swenson, who's been running the Yale Endowment for decades, yep. has passed away. This seems somewhat similar to the model that Yale was uh, using under, under Swenson. How much competition was there amongst the Ivies um, for performance, and, and how much did each of the endowments that you were familiar with, how aware were each endowment of what the others were doing? Was it sort of collegial or was it, you know, competitive? I would say it was more collegial. And in those days, as we pushed into some new areas, we would often not only cooperate, but there was some level of collaboration. So we had pushed into, again, venture capital and, and early buyouts in that 84, 85 period. David was starting at Yale and he was similarly doing some of the same things. We worked together on a number of oil and gas opportunities. So there was a level of cooperation that underlined a lot of what we did. Um, now, uh, I think Harvard accelerated a little more quickly than some of the other Ivies did into these areas. Uh, we had the strong support of the Harvard Corporation uh, to um, explore these kinds of activities. Uh, I would uh, 
often do presentations to them of, about how it was going, and we had reasonable early success, which which helps. Um, and uh, uh, I think as um, uh, as it became uh, comfortable for Harvard to do it, uh, others um, others also uh, jumped in. Um, I think Yale about simultaneously, and, and some of the other uh, Ivy League endowments uh, followed. Huh, quite intriguing. So the world of alternatives has certainly changed, and your involvement dates back uh, almost 40 years. What do you see as some of the biggest changes that have taken place in private equity? Well, I think the, um, the, the nature of what we have to do to drive um, superior returns uh, continues to get more labor-intensive, uh, requiring uh, higher levels of uh, value-add uh, early on. Uh, I think there were lots of opportunities um, uh, that did not require the level of intensity of um, either operational value-add or necessarily um, uh, the ability to use um, uh, acquisitions as platforms for um, uh, uh, consolidating industries. Uh, the returns were often driven by the ability to enter uh, at uh, multiples that are significantly uh, lower than what we typically see today. Uh, the use of leverage was not all that well-known, particularly in the early part of the 80s, the mid-80s. And so in the, um, the, the, uh, the buyout side of private equity, um, there was uh, an opportunity that um, that really doesn't exist today to uh, to buy things uh, uh, very cheaply relative to their intrinsic value, uh, and then you were able to ride that to uh, rel- relatively strong returns. I think today, um, and you know, really for the last decade, you know, pricing has been anywhere from fair to frothy. Um, and in order to generate the kinds of returns that we expect uh, and that our investors uh, expect, um, you know, our organizations are dramatically larger, uh, have um, much higher levels of expertise, uh, and much higher levels of specialization. So, um, you know, it's uh, still a really good business uh, to be in, uh, something that um, uh, I, I think has um, brings together um, both investment skills and um, the ability to participate in um, uh, growing uh, really important enterprises. Uh, so you know, as a, uh, an individual, um, you know, it's a it's a continues to be a a fun and exciting place to be. Uh, but the nature of uh, and intensity of the work that we have to do to, uh, as I mentioned, sustain these high returns uh, has certainly increased dramatically. So I know you didn't get to to Thomas H. Lee till the mid-90s or so, but I have a vivid recollection of the Snapple deal that they did uh, in 92, and really that was my first recognition that, hey, private equity has some real firepower, and, and back then these were all called LBOs or buyouts or what have you. Right. But but that seems to be like a real turning point um, for PE. What what's your recollection of the significance of that deal? Am I making too much of this, or was that like a really big moment? 
No, I think it was a really big moment. Um, you know, I joined in 94. Um, the Snapple investment was made in 92 and monetized in 95. Um, and the, um, uh, the ability to buy a company and make your money on the growth of that enterprise as opposed to uh, the traditional uh, buyout up to that period of time, which was to buy large enterprises that might not be as efficient as they um, should be, uh, often had a uh, aggregation of dissimilar businesses where there was value to disaggregating those businesses, you know, uh, a model that applied to the great majority of, um, of, of buyouts that were done uh, up through that period uh, was something very different than the ability to identify uh, a company that had the uh, ability to significantly grow revenues uh, where you could bring at least some strategic direction uh, to the founders of that company that allowed for the uh, growth to accelerate. And that's one of the things that we saw in Snapple. And that became a model for a, a lot of other things that happened um, uh, in the industry. Um, you know, in the mid-'90s, um, you know, uh, my uh, uh, partner, uh, Tony DeNovi, and I um, – were involved uh, in the uh, the buyout of the TRW uh, business, um, the information services business uh, that became Experian, uh, and similarly things like Fisher Scientific, um, where we were identifying opportunities um, uh, where the ability to significantly grow the enterprise was how you were making your money. Uh, again, not not just on um, buying something that was inefficient and um, uh, perhaps um, aggregated in ways that um, uh, made less sense than disaggregating them. So, so to clarify, this isn't just saying, hey, that's a good company, but it's inefficient and we can make it run better. You're really talking about strategically redeploying the assets of a company in order to generate a faster growth rate, a better return, et cetera. I think that's a fair characterization, yes. And before we get into more details about private equity, I have to ask, co-CEOs, how how is that working out? Some firms I know find it really challenging to do that. I've been doing it for over 20 years. It's worked out extraordinarily well. I think we try to bring together talents that are complementary. And, you know, when you're looking at the the broad range of tasks at hand with a firm like ours, it's always nice to have a partner to uh, talk to. Divide and conquer makes, makes a lot of sense. So mentioned earlier some of the valuation concerns that the market is certainly less cheap than it once was. Let's talk about alpha in private equity in general and the idea that p- private equity had access to companies at lower multiples across the board, lower than the public markets, lower than a lot of private market pricing. Is that just now a historical footnote and we'll never see that again? Or is this one of those cyclical things that rises and falls like everything else? Well, I, I've, I've long learned the hard way that I, I'm uh, not great at uh, predicting the future in lots of different ways. 
So I can't tell you that we'll never see it again. What I will say is that there is an awareness on the part of sellers of the value of leverage. That was something that was less well-known in the uh, 1980s and even in the early 1990s. And the nature of what we do really is much more dependent upon picking industries and sectors and subsectors wisely and then having the ability to drive operational uh, value uh, improvements uh, at these um, portfolio companies. That is a skill set that requires a large number of expert individuals who have specialization both in domains, the subsectors or industries that we focus upon, and also a high degree of expertise in being able to improve the key business processes of companies in ways that allow that company to increase its competitive position such that we can uh, drive higher rates of growth on the revenue side, make the company more efficient so that we can drive even higher rates of growth on the uh, profit and cash flow side. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So, so let's stick with this topic because it's really you know, a key issue underlying markets these days. There's an observation, and I'm not sure if I'm paraphrasing or this is an exact quote, but, quote, it is problematic for asset valuations when company multiples are disproportionately high when compared to the company's true growth rate, unquote. Give us a little more flesh on that. So, you know, generally we're, we're trying to buy companies reflective of what you might call the intrinsic or fair value of the company. And as we've looked back over time, the key drivers of that would be the uh, return on invested capital characteristics of the specific company and more broadly the industry. And secondly, and perhaps, you know, over a broader range of calculated outcomes, it would be the sustainable growth rate of the company. So we're very focused on buying companies where the acquisition multiple is reflective of what we believe to be the sustainable growth rates of that enterprise might be. And one of the things that we have learned over time is you can pay a reasonably high acquisition multiple if you believe that sustainable growth rate is about that same category as the uh, acquisition multiple. So, for example, you know, you could pay 15 times for a company, but you you would like to believe that that's growing at about a 15% CAGR on the EBITDA or cash flow side. What you don't want to do is pay 15 times for something growing 5 or 7%. And so, you know, as we look at the world, there are enterprises out there that that are in sectors that we think have very significant growth opportunities going forward. And, um, you know, you're going to pay a multiple uh, that is reflective of that. Just try to stay away from paying um, uh, multiples uh, on the EBITDA of the company that is um, uh, a, a much higher uh, number than that sustainable growth rate. 
So, so capital these days is, is both plentiful and cheap. What does all this cheap availability of debt do to the playing field? How does it affect both the availability of deals, the attractiveness of deals, and uh, competition? Well, the, um, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. People um, say, what's going to happen when interest rates go up? Is it going to make your business much tougher? And what we normally see when interest rates rise is the obviously the inverse on the multiple side. And that's because there's a clear relationship between, you know, the cost of capital and the multiple you can afford to pay for a company. So I think those things tend to self-correct um, if we move away from um, this um, uh, relatively uh, inexpensive um, debt, cap- uh, debt capital that we um, are currently seeing. Uh, clearly, the, the very low base rates that we have um, have allowed the markets to achieve um, overall multiples that um, are higher than on an absolute basis than we've seen it um, uh, at many points in history. And I would expect that if the base rate increases, that you're going to see some contraction in uh, market multiples, and that'll flow through to, to what we see on the buyout side as well. Really, really quite interesting. So, so I mentioned the Snapple deal from '92. You guys picked that up for a song before bringing it public, and then eventually having it uh, taken over by Quaker Oats. Um, and I think the initial price was something like three hundred million dollars. Today, we see deals in the billions of dollars all the time. How different is PE deals in terms of size? compared with a decade or two ago? Well, a decade ago, we were seeing some very large deals occur. You were seeing some 20 to $45 billion buyouts. A decade before that, uh, you were orders of magnitude lower. So, you know, to your point, most deals were being done less than a billion of enterprise value in the 1990s. There were a handful of deals that were done that were significantly larger than that, but that was those were more anomalous than uh, the than the norm. Uh, today, um, you're seeing again a return to uh, transactions that are in that uh, five to um, twenty billion dollar enterprise value range, and there are a lot of things being talked about that are um, actually um, larger than that. So, you know, uh, private equity. Uh, will um, continue to look for uh, transactions. Uh, individual firms will look for transactions that are appropriate relative to the size of their funds. Um, some of us are focused on what we would call middle market. Uh, we uh, are focused on middle market growth companies. There are other firms that are spanning into you know what you would call very very large enterprises, and uh, again, that's um, reflective of the fund sizes that some of them uh, have raised or are targeting. So when the Warner Music deal was done, I think that was $2.6 billion. That was a pretty big deal for, for Thomas Lee back then. You were there. Yep. What do you recall of that, that deal, which many observers have said is, has been transformational for a lot of the music industry? Well, we were looking at the opportunity to buy a uh, iconic company that had been part that clearly was was 
a key part of the history of Time Warner, but where the parent uh, had kind of moved beyond that particular sector. And we believe that the ability to see a transformation in the way music was distributed presented a broad set of opportunities that we could reasonably quickly take advantage of. And so we and our uh, partners, particularly Edgar Bronfman, who we brought in as the CEO of the business and who had a long and deep experience base in um, music and entertainment more broadly, had a, a plan that we were able to implement very quickly that allowed us to see um, a significant growth in the uh, cash flows of the company. And, you know, it was one of the deals that was a, a precursor in many ways to the model we see today, which is be able to add significant operational value to a company in ways that uh, that allow it to that allowed it to significantly increase its cash flows and sustain higher rates of growth in those cash flows than it otherwise might. Hmm. Interesting. And and one of the areas that THL specializes in is uh, financial services, where where you've had several exits in that space. Tell us a little bit about how you guys developed an expertise in that area. How do these deals take shape? Who are the buyers, etc.? We had long participated in different parts of uh, the financial service world early on, looking at opportunities in balance sheet-driven businesses, banks, reinsurance companies, and had developed a successful track record there. And that migrated to looking at companies in more of the fintech area. And, you know, as I think is, you know, all publicly known, we were the the key financial partner in the FIS transaction that was done with uh, Bill Foley and Fidelity National. Um, a couple of our partners, Tom Haggerty, Ganesh Rao, plus a number of others, have been very involved in a broad range of transactions since then in that sector. And uh, so, um, as you point out, it has been an area of, of specialization for us. Let's talk a little bit about healthcare and some of your funds. I'm familiar with the flagship fund and the automation fund. Tell us a little bit about what their focuses are on and and how they differ. Our strategy has been to identify certain subsectors that we think have pretty extraordinary growth characteristics. And one of the ones that we have been involved in and have, have talked about a lot over the course of the last five or six years has been automation, where we believe that there are very strong, sustainable, secular growth drivers that are uh, going to uh, be sustained for probably at least a decade. And um, we, we are in a world where um, we know that there are significant labor shortages, um, where there are... Um, uh, strong secular trends like the move to e-commerce, all well-known uh, to everyone. Uh, and we've seen the ability of uh, companies that have developed capabilities and technologies to automate a whole series of processes, both industrial and on the distribution warehouse side, that enable us to fill the gaps that can't be filled because of the difficulty of uh, finding employees to uh, automate jobs that are more mundane and allow employees to be, you know, really focus on the higher value aspects of 
their of, of the tasks at hand, and these companies continue to uh, to find new areas to expand into. So we're going to see much more automation in the uh, office space, in financial services, and healthcare. All again, things that will improve productivity, fill gaps in employment, and allow employees to see the benefit of that improved productivity through higher wages that can accrue to the uh, existing employee base because of the improvements in uh, productivity and profitability. So we've been hearing, I don't know, for a century, maybe longer, maybe go back to Malthus, that automation and technology is taking jobs away from people and pretty soon half society will be unemployed. That hasn't really seemed to happen. You, You mentioned the, the skilled service shortage and, and the difficulty in filling not just entry-level positions, but you know high-level technical positions. Why is there such a skills gap, and what is automation going to do to fill that gap? The, um, you know, the skills gap has been, as you point out, well-known for quite some time, and I think there is an enormous and appropriate focus on making sure people get the education and the training to allow them to fully participate in the technologies of the future and the um, the job sets that are opening up in uh, those areas. Automation, again, is going to be able to fill in for the jobs that, um, you know, people really don't want to do and also allow for improvements in the productivity that will allow companies to sustain higher levels of uh, compensation for their employees and still deliver the profitability that their shareholders and other stakeholders are looking for. And so automation will play an increasingly important role in a broad range of industries as we go forward and allow for the the retraining of uh, employees into areas that, again, are um, uh, higher value and are being sought after by employers, uh, both in this country and around. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So, so let's talk a little bit about the healthcare space. Obviously, the vaccine changed the way a lot of people think about uh, the sector. Uh, what opportunities do you see in, in healthcare, including pharma and, and biotech? Well, I think we we have seen uh, you know something pretty amazing over the course of the last 14 months, which is the ability uh, from uh, a standing start uh, to rev into uh, a pretty amazing um, product. Uh, when you think about the the the, the number of uh, effective uh, vaccines that we now have, um, I think. Most interesting has been the development of the mRNA uh, vaccines uh, because uh, that's not just a single product, but that is a platform um, that uh, has not produced um, uh, therapeutics or vaccines uh, before 
that can now be utilized uh, to address a range of um, uh, both vaccine opportunities, but also uh, on the therapeutic side, yet one more tool uh, against cancer and other um, rare diseases. So um, I think the uh, uh, example of um, what we've seen over the course of the last year uh, is um, uh, not just a one-off, but is actually uh, a microcosm of the opportunity set uh, that exists in healthcare um, as uh, the number of tools and technologies that we develop are allowing uh, both a faster and more effective uh, development of a broad range of therapeutics and diagnostics um, that go right to the heart of solving uh, a number of um, uh, difficult disease states uh, across uh, various uh, cancers and cardiovascular diseases, uh, as well as a number of other areas. So we're going to see, I think, a continued explosion, if you will, of, of therapeutics and diagnostics, and there are entire industries that have been set up to support the companies that have the innovative science that they will um, develop into those drugs. And um, the uh, ability to uh, provide services to the specific pharmas and biotechs who have the innovative science is is something that uh, you know we and many others have have been focused on. So whether it's the outsourcing of the clinical trials through CROs, it's the ability to provide a broader range of products and services. It's the ability to take some of the commercialization activity, whether it's Salesforce or the development of selling strategies more broadly, and help these companies do all of that while allow them, allowing them to focus all their uh, energy on the innovative science, you know, that I think is good for the world as well as um, presents a, a broad range of investment opportunities. Huh. Really interesting. You mentioned things that took place last year, obviously a COVID-19 pandemic year. How did that change the way you think about investing? What what was different for you, whether it was working from, from home or just thinking about the impact of the pandemic? How did 2020 affect the way you think about healthcare investing? Um, I would say that the the biggest impact was the recognition that um, you know there are a set of of tools out there that allow you to operate in a virtual world incredibly effectively. And for us, those are tools that you know we had not used before, um, and we're finding that um, they'll be incorporated in how we do business going forward. In terms of um, the opportunity set in healthcare, I don't know if there was any great um, realization uh, of uh, new opportunities coming out of the pandemic as much as there was a reinforcement that, you know, we are in a world where the, you know, as I said earlier, uh, the ability to support companies that uh, are able to provide a broad range of, um, of um, services uh, to the, um, the pharma and uh, biotech industry um, you know, that, that is a, a, continues to be an enormous and expanding opportunity set. Um, and the ability to um, uh, support companies that are able to provide 
various uh, forms of care um, at uh, more effective uh, prices uh, so that we can reduce the total medical expense to the system is um, is, is something that um, uh, is worth focusing upon. So, you know, I think the, um, the pandemic um, uh, in terms of healthcare investing uh, reinforced a set of opportunities more than uh, created uh, any truly new opportunity sets. Huh, really interesting. I don't know if you can answer this question, but, but I have to ask, having observed this from a distance, as well as anything I've ever done in terms of medical services, why is the U.S. healthcare system so inefficient? There, there just doesn't seem to be any universal standards for, for files or test results. You would think this would be perfect for technology to fix, and yet here it is, 2021, and it's as much a mess as it's ever been. Why can't we fix this? You know, it's a really interesting point, and I would say that, you know, first start with the question about what are the right metrics and why can't we measure them uniformly across the system. And one of the things that I've found is I've been in chair of the Mass General Brigham Healthcare System for a number of years, and it's a, uh, one of the countries, in fact, the country's leading high-end clinical and largest research and teaching institution, is the complexity of disease states, the, the nature of, of patient condition is so complicated that at the very high end, which is where much of the cost is, it's very hard to um, get apples-to-apples comparisons, and that is exacerbated by the fact that the most difficult cases will flow to the highest-end providers, will f- uh, flow into a Mass General Hospital or Brigham uh, Women's Hospital or a Mayo Clinic or a Cleveland Clinic. And so, you know, you might be looking at data that says people with a certain heart condition, you know, here, here are the outcomes, but... Um, it's not as comparable as you would like to see it because the the people with significant comorbidities and more complexity are going to flow into those highest end providers. Um, and uh, even though it, the 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 uh, description may be similar, the nature of the condition and what you do to deal with um, that condition um, uh, is um, uh, very different. So let's start with the fact that it's hard to get true comparisons, as you were referring to, across the entirety of um, the healthcare system. But even with that, um, you know, there there are lots of ways that we can improve the efficiency and information flow to uh, patients and reduce the total medical expense of the whole system. And I think there's a lot of work being done. I know at Mass General Brigham there's enormous work being done to look for ways that we can make sure that a patient with a certain acuity or complexity to their condition is treated in the right place with the most effective but cost-effective as well care. And that requires an enormous amount of effort and changes to culture and changes to structures that I think will be uh, something that we see accelerating around the country in order to deal with this issue of, uh, uh, of high um, uh, medical expense. Now, I would also note that uh, 
the United States benefits right now from having extraordinary um, health care. Uh, and, you know, one of the, the proof points of that would be the number of people who come from all, all over the world for uh, care, particularly at the very um, uh, high end uh, of the acuity um, uh, level, people who are uh, reasonably sick want to come and be treated here, uh, not as much people here going to um, other places. Uh, other than the so-called medical tourism, and, and that's the strange paradox is the level of care here is so good, and yet systemically the entire operation is it seems to be just so chaotic. It, it, it's really kind of fascinating that the the more granular you get, the more specific you get, the better the treatment is, but step back and look at the entire system, it's expensive and doesn't always have great outcomes. Well, you know, and again, I think it goes to this issue of are we measuring things correctly and do we have the tools, as I mentioned earlier, to actually measure things appropriately? And because of the the incredible complexity and specific nature of um, of uh, patients' uh, conditions, it's often hard to do that. And so um, the proof points are are more um, in the outcomes that we see for patients with extraordinarily difficult conditions. The way that we provide care on you know the more primary and secondary side is something where it's a lot easier to look on a comparable basis across systems to see what the most uh, effective and yet um, cost-effective ways of um, providing, you know, primary and secondary care might be. On the tertiary and quaternary side, it gets a lot harder uh, for the reasons that I just mentioned. Let's talk a little bit about how rapidly these markets came back and, and what that might mean for the alternative space. Uh, were you surprised at how quickly the market collapsed and then snapped right back to what it was doing pre-COVID? I was less surprised by the nature of the collapse, given uh, the fact that we had this unprecedented shutdown to uh, our economy, uh, and much more surprised by the speed at which it came back. I think, you know, early on people were dismissing the possibility of a V-shaped recovery, uh, particularly a sharp V, and um, those of us who were doing that were completely wrong. Uh, I think what we didn't anticipate was the unprecedented level of both monetary and fiscal support uh, that that we saw occur here in the United States as well as um, around the world. Um, and and did that create any unique opportunities for investing during during COVID? Did did anything bubble up more quickly than it might have otherwise? I would say uh, distressed opportunities were uh, here and then gone in about a nanosecond. Uh, there were a few few things that uh, got done in the industry that uh, I think um, you know was characteristic of uh, distressed investing, but, um, you know, primarily that that disappeared as we saw that very sharp V-shaped recovery. So much of what what we were doing was, uh, again, uh, focusing on areas that um, we felt had that strong secular growth to it uh, 
And one of the benefits of strong secular growth is it tends to be less adversely affected by cyclical downturns, um, whether it's caused by a normal economic cycle or, in this case, by the uh, uh, pandemic uh, that, um, again, led to an unprecedented shutdown of the economy. So some folks are describing the current era as as late cycle or late business cycle. Uh, What sectors do you find uh, attractive if it's late cycle, what what businesses are you kinds of businesses are you looking at? You know, for us, it's um, again the areas that we've we've had very long um, base of experience in that we think you know we'll be able to um, to ride through a more traditional economic cyclical downturn, and so that would be things in the financial services fintech space. Uh, we talked about healthcare, where we see a, again a, a broad set of opportunities that tend to be less, much less cyclically sensitive, and then the um, uh, the areas of technology and automation that will continue to be deployed uh, almost regardless of the economic cycle. And it's not to say that these areas won't see some adverse effect during an economic cycle. I think they they generally will, but it will be a much softer. Uh, downturn than uh, you'll see in uh, industrial uh, industries, process industries, and um, you know other sectors that have tended to um, to uh, see uh, much sharper ups and downs as we go through uh, the uh, traditional economic cycles. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So you mentioned the financial sector. Uh, I, I have to ask you a little bit about DeFi and, and the potential challenge uh, to centralized finance and fiat currencies. And, and let's break that into things like financial apps and services versus, let's call it blockchain versus crypto. H- how do you look at that universe? Well, so we have traditionally been focused on uh, supporting uh, companies that provide technologies to the more asset-based part of the financial services world. So we were the sponsor of uh, companies like Black Knight Financial, which is the largest provider of technology services to the mortgage world. I mentioned FIS. We are very interested in uh, companies that can help the various parts of the insurance value chain do their jobs better. Wealth management, again, is a, is a really interesting sector that we've um, participated in and where we think that there are ways of, of improving the ability to serve clients through the utilization of technology. So in the financial services world, we've generally been focused on how to help the kinds of companies that directly serve consumers and businesses in their key business processes. Blockchain is an interesting technology in that regard that I think we're still in very early innings. 
I would separate blockchain from cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, even though they're often put in the same category. We have not really um, focused uh, upon the, the cryptocurrency side. It's not it's not an area that that uh, we have any um, uh, traditional strengths in. You know, obviously, we've been fascinated to watch the um, the uh, explosion in the valuation of these cryptocurrencies, but uh, don't really have a strong view on it. Hmm. Kind of, kind of interesting, and we've been we've been talking about growth rate and valuations. When you look at spaces like blockchain, how do you come up with a valuation method for a particular company? You, are you just guessing at future discounted cash flow? Are you trying to ballpark where the market might go? When a technology is so young, it seems like it's practically impossible to come up with a, a, a reasonable valuation. Yeah, I think you're you're pointing to something that that probably is characteristic of the differences between the venture capital yes. side of private equity and the buyout side and, and growth equity side of private equity. So uh, I think on the venture side, when you're investing in in very young technologies, new technologies, you know, you are making a very broad based bet without the ability to have any level of precision about what those numbers will look like in any given one, two, three, let alone five to 10 year period. What we're trying to do on our side is invest in companies where we think we have enough data to have a reasonably high probability of achieving a uh, at least a three to five year set of projections. Obviously, a lot harder to go uh, past that. And so we spend an enormous amount of time uh, trying to model out particularly the first three years of growth of, uh, of a given company, looking at the broad range of market conditions that allow for that growth and where that specific company may be in the competitive set of, of companies trying to serve that market. And so, you know, we're, we're making less of a, of a venture bet and more of a bet on something where there's already at least sufficient data to be able to do the uh, kind of uh, detailed analytics that we like to do to have a reasonably high degree of comfort about at least what the next three years are going to look like. Huh, quite interesting. And, and, and I know there's that distinction, and it's really challenging to, uh, to manage it. Do you look at the word disruption and think, oh, not that cliche again? Or is that a legitimate resonant description for, for some of the new technologies that are coming along? Oh, I think it's, you know, a crucial word in the investing universe because what we're trying to do is look for companies that are on the right side of, of disruption and always be aware of the, the business models that could be disrupted by new technologies or new entrants that bring in a very different model to a uh, given industry or sector. And so we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that, you know, we are on the right side of that, as I just said, as opposed to being put in a position, um, our entire business model can be undermined by new entrants who uh, disrupt the um, traditional way that business is uh, done in that industry. So, so speaking about traditional ways of doing business, in my research, I noted that when you guys did the Dunkin' Brands deal in 2005, they were one of the larger franchisers of Dunkin' Donuts restaurants. You didn't just do that by yourself. You, you had Bain Capital and the Carlisle Group as co-investors. 
Is that sort of transaction common? It, it sounds more like a traditional VC investment with co-investors than private equity. So there was a period of time where the size of the transactions or the nature of the transactions in private equity, in the buyout side of private equity, were required more than one firm. And it was a point in time when the availability of capital was really from other GPs. Today, we're in a world where we have just some phenomenal limited partners who um, are anxious to be co-investors in transactions. So in today's world, we rarely have another general partner in a deal. But back in the, um, the 2000s, and in fact, even in the late 1990s, it was more traditional, uh, given the size of transactions and the size of our funds, to partner with another general partner or more than one general partner um, uh, to uh, acquire a company. So, you know, Bain Capital um, was a partner of ours in a number of different transactions. Uh, and um, Duncan Brands was one of them. And we partnered with Carlisle on a couple of things as well. And, um, you know, that um, that has really evolved more uh, in uh, today's world to a single GP uh, buying a company uh, with the support of uh, their limited partners who co-invest uh, in that deal. Uh, now, we're also seeing some rather large transactions happen again, uh, and in those transactions, you might, you're starting to see, you know, the so-called club deal come back um, because the, um, the ability to underwrite those uh, transactions may require more than one uh, general partner. Um, uh, so, you know, the world... You know, as, as you had mentioned earlier about um, the cyclicality, the nature of valuations going uh, up and down, uh, you know, uh, if you're uh, in this business long enough, you um, you will often see trends uh, that you thought might have disappeared come back. And I think we may be seeing the comeback of um, the so-called club deal, uh, where you club together uh, uh, two or more uh, general partners uh, to acquire a company. Hmm. That's really that's really interesting. It's um, it, it it's kind of fascinating. I had no idea that the structure. I knew there were calls on LPs who put money into a fund, but I never realized that when a big enough deal comes along, they might be um, less limited than what we traditionally think of as limited partners. Is this the future of private equity? Is this going to be a a big aspect? And the reason I ask that is. Vanguard and some other large public investor, non-accredited investor shops have been looking to access more private equity. This seems like a very different model. Well, I think it's something that's been developing uh, over um, you know, uh, the last decade. Uh, it's something that um, we've been very focused on is the strategic partnership that you can have with your limited partners. Uh, I think a, a, a lot of firms in the industry uh, have been thinking about it in a similar way. Um, and uh, it, it allows you, uh, particularly in a world where it's not clear what the pace of investing uh, could be if one's trying to sustain you know, the, the kind of um, high returns that uh, our investors uh, expect and that, that we want to be able to provide them, um, uh, it allows you to size your fund in ways um, they give you a reasonably high level of assurance that you can maintain the disciplines 
um, that you want in order to achieve those returns and allow you to scale up on transactions that are on the larger side of what your target universe uh, uh, is. So um, the, the strategic partnership uh, there, I think, is important to the GP. And for the LPs, it's a way of participating more broadly in private equity uh, where you're not um, uh, necessarily paying the, the same kind of fees uh, and um, uh, profit participation to the GP that uh, you would on the investments that you make directly into their funds. All right. I know I only have you for another 20 or so minutes. So before I get to my favorite question, I'm going to throw you a curveball. And okay. that's for t- for two decades, you sat on the board of uh, the Dolan's Controlled Cable Systems. Um, and this year, first time in a long time, the Knicks are having a decent year. So what's it going to take to get the Dolan's to finally sell the team? What do we have to do? <laughs> So I was on the board of MSG. I'm not sure it was for quite that long. Uh, right. And um, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the team certainly had, um, as you point out, uh, significant ups and downs and, um, you know, even uh, more, uh, I guess, um, significantly, uh, you know, uh, a, a long uh, period of um, – not getting anywhere near uh, the success that uh, fans had wanted. And uh, right. I'm no longer on the MSG hey, board. Hey, anyone could have a bad um, decade, but, right? Or, or two. Um, right. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the team, you know, the, I, I really think they're uh, on the right track now. Um, you know, I think um, uh, Leon Rose has done a very nice job of, of putting together uh, a team um, – that has a lot of upside to it uh, with a coach that, uh, you know, has finally returned the team to its roots of being a very tough defensive-minded um, uh, squad. Um, uh, and so I'm, um, I'm optimistic uh, about the future. But uh, as a um, longtime Knicks fan myself, you know, way before I joined the uh, MSG board, um, I'm just uh, very happy to see uh, see the success they've had this year. Let's jump to our favorite questions we ask all our guests, starting with, what are you, speaking of, of MSG and various channels, what are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime, what, whatever's keeping you occupied and entertained during uh, lockdown. Well, my wife and I have have kind of gone through um, almost uh, everything one can watch on uh, either of those channels. I mean, I, I'd say our favorites were things like Queen's Gambit, which I think lots of people uh, have uh, really enjoyed. Um, uh, you know, there's a wide range of of um, uh, other things uh, that that go that go across a number of diff- different genres from. Um, uh, Bridgerton type thing to um, um, the great on Hulu, um, you know. So um, you know, we're always looking. We, we probably spend uh, ten minutes trying to figure out what to watch uh, almost uh, every night. So um, you know, lots of different fun things. Huh. And uh, tell us about some of your early mentors who helped to shape your career. So, um, you know, I would say one really important mentor very early on uh, was Walter Cabot, who, as I mentioned earlier, is the 
CEO of Harvard Management Company, actually started Harvard Management Company for Harvard, um, and uh, just a remarkable uh, individual who um, I think had uh, both uh, great success um, in traditional money management and yet also had the foresight to push Harvard into areas that um, at the time, um, you know, were not consistent uh, at first thought with uh, what they used to call the reasonable man rule, uh, which was a general rule about how um, uh, the nature of the risk one could take with uh, endowment uh, and foundation assets. Um, and Walter was incredibly supportive uh, of the uh, the, the uh, efforts that he had me undertake to uh, to move Harvard into these um, alternative asset spaces well before almost any other uh, endowment or foundation. Um, and um, he, uh, uh, you know, was just uh, an extraordinarily uh, smart and supportive boss uh, to have, and uh, really launched me into um, uh, the career that uh, that I have now. Um, and you know, there were people along the way who taught me lots of different things. I remember um, Floyd Kwame at uh, Kleiner Perkins, who. Um, we co-invested with when I was at uh, Harvard. He was uh, one of the general partners at Kleiner Perkins, and we served on a number of boards together of uh, early Kleiner companies. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Floyd was a founder of National Semiconductor and uh, a, a um, uh, individual who had great uh, operating and uh, technology experience and uh, really learned a lot about how... Um, uh, young, uh, dynamic growth companies work from, uh, somebody like Floyd. Um, you know, Tom Lee, uh, when, uh, we worked together, um, you know, Tom had, uh, had, uh, this great ability to really like, uh, any deal. Uh, and, um, what he was, um, you know, looking at, uh, was an, uh, an ability to, um, uh, look for the opportunity set, uh, uh, on things and uh, learned uh, uh, learned all, a lot of that from uh, from Tom and uh, you know as I go through um, um, the the various uh, uh, relationships I've had over many many years um, you know there have been an extraordinary number of uh, of people who um, even though they were more uh, uh, on the peer side than the the boss or um, uh, older mentor side. Uh, that I've been able to learn from. And uh, one of the great experiences um, uh, that I've had um, is um, working uh, with John MacArthur, who was the longtime dean of the Harvard Business School and who first got me involved in um, the, uh, the what's now the Mass General Brigham uh, Health System uh, in, uh, uh, when he was the uh, chair of the Brigham and then became the founding uh, co-chair of uh, what was then called Partners Healthcare, which has now morphed into uh, the Mass General Brigham System. And, you know, John was an iconic figure at uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, he and I uh, shared uh, rugby uh, in common, so I had gotten to know him a little bit through that. Uh, and then, um, you know, watched his ability uh, to look at um, a situation uh, in ways that were innovative and different than what almost anybody else was thinking 
uh, and how he was able to turn a lot of that into um, uh, new realities. And um, that's been uh, uh, something that uh, I've uh, long valued, uh, both the, the personal relationship with John, who uh, passed away over the last uh, couple of years, um, uh, and um, the, um, uh, the learnings I got from uh, his ability to take a step back, think out of the box, and then uh, turn uh, uh, some out-of-the-box thinking into realities. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So let's talk a little bit about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? Um, so... Um you know, right right now, I have a, a few I'm uh, reading, kind of a, on a range of things. Um, you know, I think the Jim Collins book, Built to Last, is pretty interesting uh, right now as a kind of a, uh, a survey, a wide range of um, different companies doing things differently and, and um, trying to understand, um, you know, how you uh, make breakthroughs in, in um, places that um, have um, uh, a... a long legacy of success. Um, I've uh, had fun reading The Dynasty. Uh, the the crafts have done such a remarkable job at building uh, a, um, uh, a franchise um, that I think sets the standard for sports teams uh, and other organizations, other types of organizations. Um, uh, you know, there are some interesting areas um, I've liked uh, AI superpowers um, as a, a way of really understanding uh, China uh, and what they're doing and how they approach um, that uh, in, incredibly important uh, uh, area. Um, I recently reread The Best and the Brightest, which was probably about my fifth time, uh, because I think that there, you know, uh, there's continued lessons to be had. Uh, about um, how we approach the world um, and uh, the importance uh, of uh, of avoiding hubris. Um, so um, you know, there's a there's a range of things I think are really interesting. Huh, quite quite fascinating. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in private equity? You know. Um, it's a great business. It's a great business. It's a great area. Um, uh, try to get involved in it if you really fundamentally love building businesses. Uh, they're probably easier jobs uh, to have um, if one's looking uh, at it just from the financial aspects. Um, uh, I really do think our industry uh, is uh, about uh, helping make companies better uh, and. Um, uh, being involved with management teams uh, that um, uh, uh, can be true partners. Um, so if that's what excites you, if you're really interested in in helping build enterprise, this is a great uh, a great uh, industry to uh, to do that from. 
And our final question, what do you know about the world of private equity and investing today you wish you knew almost 40 years ago when you were first getting started? Um, so it's a really, it's a, it's a fascinating thing because I'm not sure there's, there, there, there is one thing, but, um, you know, I think understanding that, um, there are points, there are, there are various points where you think, um, you know, the downside, uh, is reasonably limited where it's not things can always be dramatically worse than you might ever uh, anticipate. But conversely, uh, there, there are opportunity sets out there that one needs to, uh, to imagine uh, clearly with some analytical basis, but one needs to imagine as upsides that um, you know, are not part of uh, conventional thought. Um, and so understanding that the range of outcomes can be much more extreme than you think uh, is something that, that you learn over time. Um, and um, being unbound uh, by um, often conventional thought is one of the more critical uh, skills uh, to acquire uh, as you're in our industry. Huh. Really quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Scott Sperling. He is the co-chief executive officer of Thomas H. Lee. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 400 such conversations. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.